I belong to this international organization and you get once a month meeting, we all get together. And I've gotten frustrated because I go in there and everybody's just kind of scooting over the top of everything. And we're sitting there nodding our heads like we know what they're talking about. There's no details to it. For me, it's $700 a month and it's hard to justify, you know? Uh, honestly, I feel like that I've got 10 times more out of listening to your meetings. <laughs> drinks with another guy at the office. We're lamenting working for this company. You know, I'm off to start my own business, I tell the boss arrogantly. Were you still drunk? Yeah, yeah I was a little hungover. <laughs> so it started making a living, but it wasn't like this overnight success. I hustled like crazy. Mike Michalowicz. I am from Boonton, New Jersey, which most people wouldn't know where that is since we're such a tiny town, but it's about 20 miles west of New York City. And what I do is I am an author, full-time author. I've written multiple books. Uh, my most popular right now, at least, is Profit First. I've also written The Pumpkin Plan, Surge, and some other books, and am working on a new one that comes out in 2018. When you were a kid, did you decide you wanted to be an author? No, I never never had an aspiration to be an author. Actually, I never had an aspiration to be an entrepreneur. So I'm that too. I've had the good fortune, knocking on wood there, of building and selling uh, multiple companies. And I'm currently operating one with a business partner. And I, I never aspired to be an entrepreneur either. It's just, it presented itself. And I guess I'm the type of person now when I see something that seems it'll be fun and appealing and something I can do well, I'll grab onto it. So when authorship presented itself about 10 years ago, Someone turned me on to it. And I said, you know what? This is something that sounds really cool. I'm going to do it. And when I dove into it, I said, this, this is my life's passion. So I am all in. How did you figure that out? And what did the person say to you to get you hooked on it? Yeah. So the guy's name, I'll never forget, is Vern Harnish. He's an author himself. And I was at a class he was teaching to other entrepreneurs. Actually, I'll never forget this. The event was called Birthing of Giants. And the idea behind this conference, they did it multiple years. It's subsequently no longer exists. It's morphed into a different program, but it was run by MIT, the university, in conjunction with Inc. And this guy, Vern Harnish, was the facilitator for it. And I remember sitting in the room, and next to me was a guy who sold or sold a service that collected junk. And it was a brand new startup. It was called the Rubbish Boys or something. It was whatever. It was this guy telling me about his business. And the next guy, the guy next to me, was starting a lip balm company and trying to build it. And the guy behind me was making cases for different kinds of phones. This is when like Nextel was a hot phone. And I remember listening to these guys, this was my ego. I'm like, all these businesses sound so dumb. Like you can't become the next big players. Well, the guy sitting to my left, the junk removal, Rubbish Boys was renamed to 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Now a half billion dollar company. The guy to my right, his name is Rob French. He was the third partner in Burt's Bees that subsequently sold for a billion dollars. Uh, the guy behind me was Tony Lilios. He started a company called Spec that became like the company making phone cases. And so I'm sitting with these guys. Everyone's in their infantile stages of their business. Again, this is like 10, 15 years ago. And Vernon Harner stands in front of the group and says, everyone in this room has to write a book. That makes you the authority in your space. You have to write a book. And I think people got it. But with me, it landed. I said, that's right. I want to pursue this. I need to write a book. But about what? And the second turning point was uh, after selling a couple of companies, becoming very financially secure on my own accord, my ego blew up and I, I lost all my money. I, I wasted my money. It took me about two years, but I blew everything. And I had to restart business to get back on my feet. And what I discovered during that time is, 
even though I thought I had an understanding of financial strength and stability, I really didn't. I was clueless. So I decided to st- investigate all the areas where I was clueless in my own business and start writing books about them. So all my books inevitably have been written because it was a challenge that I was facing or went through. So I really wrote these originally for myself to fix my own errors, my own mishaps, and found that they serve many other entrepreneurs too. So that's why they became books. And when was that time period that you were making a lot of money and then lost it all? So 2006 is when I sold my second company to a Fortune 500. I had sold my first one about four years prior to that. So that's when I was there, right? And then 2000, I lost all my money. And 2008 was a a double punch to the face because all my investments lost too. I mean, everything just tanked in 2008. So 2008 became a one wonderful turning point for me. I launched my first book then that year called The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, coming up on the 10-year anniversary, and just fell in love with the process. And it wasn't like, oh my God, I found it and things are cruising and I'm a walking success. I mean, it's been 10 years now of consistent raw effort. But what did happen 10 years ago was I found a passion, a purpose, and nothing will stop me now. Regardless of what challenges present themselves, I feel compelled beyond belief to do this. So that's why I do it and I'll never stop. So you lost basically all your money you're saying in investments 2008, but that was the same year you're writing your book. Did you have a little bit of money saved up? Because it doesn't sound like, was there any money coming in the door while you're trying to write this thing? No, I mean, I, I did little consulting projects here and there. I did a few things just, to, I did whatever I could to get by and survive, but knew that I got to write book. So I did some consulting work and I'll tell you, anyone that struggles financially for a period of time, look at consulting, look at for individual projects. Uh, if you can't or don't want to get a job, which is definitely an option too, once you've started your own business, if you at least look for consulting work, you can get stuff here and there easier than you can get a permanent client. So that bridged me was that consulting work. Well, if, if you don't mind, why don't we talk about those first two companies and kind of how you got into entrepreneurship? Because it sounded like you said you got into it by accident. Yeah. So how I got into entrepreneurship was uh, after college, I, I couldn't get a job. It was not a good one. I mean, I did get a job, but it was at a local computer store slash service provider. And I started working there and good little company, but it struck me then about a year or two into it that, you know, I should really start my own business. In fact, the story is I, I went out for drinks with another guy at the office and we're, we're throwing back some brews and he's like, uh, you know, we're talking, we're lamenting working for this company. He worked there also. And, and uh, I said, you know, what? I want to start my own company. And he said, well, then do it. And he, he literally laid down the gauntlet. He's like, well, do it. If that's your dream, do it. So I said, okay. Now, Liquid Courage was was a major benefactor in that. So I started it and I started the next day and you know it was a struggle. But I will tell you one thing, when starting a business, a lot of people underestimate the importance of fear. They know it's going to happen and there's this, you know, you look over the edge and it's scary and start, there's a lot of scary components. But one of the benefits of fear is when you are scared of failure, it's just a great energy source. So, you know, I was getting up at five in the morning and I was working until five the next morning. I, no problem. Um, I was so afraid of not making it that I had to do whatever it takes to make. And I, I don't think that's, I know it's not a sustainable method. Like I don't encourage people to to start a business and hope that fear will carry them through for eternity. But it, it is a great way, it is a great resource if you channel that fear into getting work done to, to give you the energy to get started. By a certain point, fear has to turn into confidence that you know what you're doing. Because fear does bring about stress too. But it, but it was a great asset for me in the beginning. 
I guess you got that liquid courage of what about two years in. So what did you end up doing the next day? You're, I'm going to start this company. What did you decide you're going to start? Oh yeah. So the next day I actually got a lawsuit. It was so unbelievable. But <laughs> next morning I quit my job and I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm off to start my own business. I, I tell the boss arrogantly. <laughs> and then, then what I did is- I, Were you still drunk? Yeah, yeah I was a little hungover. <laughs> I was, I was. I was also, also married at the time. Uh, I still am with my wife, had our first son. So what I started doing was calling the clients that I worked with. I was with the old company and said, hey, I started my own business. I would love to work with you. you know, I didn't realize that's illegal. You can't do that. That's, that's proprietary knowledge and information that belongs to those, that company. It's that company's business. So I solicited like five or six clients who ultimately came over to me, but didn't realize I was actually breaking the law. So I got a lawsuit against me immediately next morning saying, you're soliciting our clients. And within a day or two, it was in court. The court can move that quickly in a case like this and then settled it with the last penny I had. So I had $1,000 left to start this business. $1,000 went to the attorney. And at least I had a business to, to start and I had a few clients. If I ever did start it again, I would never take someone else's clients. I really didn't know you can't do that or you shouldn't, just wasn't thinking. But that was the start to the business. It was a struggle for years. I mean, I had a few clients, but really to grow it, it took me about four or five years before you got serious traction and the business took off. Right. And what were you doing in those years? And what exactly was the business? So it was also a computer company. We were doing, we weren't a computer store. We, we'd set up computer network. And so we go to small businesses and say, oh, you need five computers. We'll get you the computers and we'll link them all together. And that's what we were doing. What, what I was doing was I was everything. It was me. I had a business partner. It was me and him. And we would sell it. We would service it. We would do the accounting, everything. And we started dividing up the work, which was smart, by the way. You know, when two people are doing the same thing, it's, it's a waste. But a lot of early businesses, it's like, hey, let's do a sales call together. Hey, let's do this together. There's a lot of together time because there's a shoulder to cry on and, and we're, we're uncomfortable doing something alone. But really early on, my partner and I noticed, you know, we got to be doing different things. I had a better strength at sales. He had a better strength at implementing the system. We could do both. He could definitely sell and he could definitely implement systems, but we moved toward our strength. And it kept the business afloat for a while. Then about five or six years in, that's when we really hit it because we found the power of niching. Once you pick a really narrow niche and only sell to that community, you become famous in that community. And that's what we did. And what was that niche for y'all? It was a hedge fund. So what we did is I was looking at our clients as we're building our little business and our best client hands down was a hedge fund. This guy was such a great client that he would order computers from us, for example. And then he, with his order, he'd say, by the way, I FedExed you a check because I know you're a small business and can't afford these computers for us. So the check's ready in the mail. My other clients would order the computers and then I'd have to take you know 30 or 60 days, hopefully to get the money back. So when I realized this guy was my true number one client, what I started to do was ask him, tell me more about hedge funds. Where do you guys like go to events and conferences? What magazines do you read? So I started to understand the hedge fund market, positioned myself there. I mean, I would go to the conferences. I would, I actually started writing for one of their magazines and I started getting a name out there in the hedge fund community quickly too. I mean, it was about six months before of doing that before we got our first client. And then within a year, we had like six or seven clients in that niche. And within two years, I think we had like 15 or 20. I mean, it really started to grow. I don't have a scalable internet business. So your podcast, your guest that you interview resonates a lot more. And, you know, you interview them very well and uh, you're quite consistent. So, you know, I, when I'm going for a drive, that's what I listen to. Well, yeah, like I said, I appreciate it. So you're in Dubai? Yeah. So it's the capital of the UAE. He actually was in the Middle East. Oh, wow. You know, I don't know if he invests at all, but at least he can definitely point you in the right way and understand the stuff that you have to deal with. Yeah, uh, that'd be awesome. Okay, yeah, I'll reach out to him. So I helped, finally. No, no, just talking to you has uh, helped, uh, helped get my thinking going. 
And so how many employees did you have at that point? And when did you get out? Uh, when we sold it, when I sold it, my the other partner stayed. When I sold it, we probably had like 20 employees. And I, my main role was becoming sale and managing the company. And I sold it to private equity. So that means an you know, affluential buyer came in. Uh, the one partner ended up staying and I left to start a new business, which was a really exciting one. It was in computer crime investigation. It's, it's called computer forensic, but we investigated some major crime in the U.S., true criminal activity like murder and sadly trafficking and pornography. And we did a lot of corporate cases. That business was exciting for a period of time. It was just a gross industry, but it was exciting. Well, can we talk about before you jump into that, you know, how you left the company, how you decided you want to leave? Was there what you learned when you're exiting that company? first one. Yeah. So I sat down with my business partner and and we started talking about the vision and I wanted a sizable company. I thought we had a real shot at becoming a 20 or 30 or $40 million company. You know, it's a real big company. And I was very driven at that phase of my life too, by prestige money. And my business partner, who was about 10 years older than me said, I want a lifestyle business. He goes, you know, we, we already surpassed a million dollars in revenue. But he said, if we get to two or $3 million in revenue, like I have a comfortable lifestyle. I don't want to work more. I don't want anything else. And it became very clear that we were divided. He wanted to stay put. I wanted to push forward. And so my first offer, I said, why don't you leave and I'll run the company. And he said, why don't you leave and I'll run it. And I said, okay, I'll leave. And he bought me out with private equity. So another investor came in, the money guy, and they partnered up together. And I moved on to build the company I envisioned. And so were you in New York during this whole time? No, I was in New Jersey. So all my companies have been within a five mile radius of where I live. I'm a big fan of a short commute. Yeah, no, it seems like it. That's the case. Yeah, let's talk about, so you wanted to start a new company, but it wasn't the exact same thing, right? It was like you were talking about is dealing more with forensic? Yeah, so the second business was uh, forensic specifically. And what we did is we would investigate criminal cases. Now we would do what's called defense expert services, meaning if say there was a, a murder case, the government analyzes the evidence and uses their experts, usually internal experts to analyze the evidence for the prosecution side. The defense, the person being prosecuted, would often hire their own expert. So we did some murder cases where we're looking at the evidence provided by the defense. And sadly, but truly, m- many of the cases, uh, the defense was it was guilty. And by the way, you're obligated by moral, but by also by law to speak the truth. So say, you know what, here's the evidence we found guilty. It still helps the defense at least prepare their case when they know what's coming. But a few times we found people that were truly innocent. They were wrongly accused, or at least the evidence that was put up against them was not truthful. And those are some of the proud moments of facts we found and produced. Well, how did you figure out you wanted to do that from going from, it was called Olmec? systems right to what PG yeah yeah so you know in all the heck it was computers and that's what i knew and then i was watching csi one night and it's like wow that looks cool these these guys doing these investigative investigations and stuff and i would love to do it so it just seemed cool it was also in the computer space something i was comfortable with so the learning curve was very small to do the forensic work. There was definitely a learning curve, but it was very small. And that company also was the right place, right time. So we were doing this work in uh, criminal cases. Well, we got a call from Enron and the attorneys for the defense called us and said, hey, we heard about you and the work you're doing. We'd love to bring you on for a case. And that was the breakthrough moment. It's about a year and a half, I think, into our work, maybe two years into it. And we landed you know, a major case in our, our business. It was in a different type of clientele that you're trying to figure out. Because I'm, I'm just imagining if you left you know, your old company 
is it again, the very next day you start this new company or you already had it in mind that you're going to get in a forensic space and how are you able to find your clients? Oh yeah. So no clients this time. I knew I was going to get into the forensic space. So as I was, my partners and my other business, we, we, we ended very amicably. It wasn't like, you know, I got to run out and leave. We picked a closer date and we were building toward it. They gave me flexibility to do some research and planning on the side, but I feel, filled my obligations keeping that business moving forward. And we made the close date, I think December 31st. So at 11.59, so that night, you know, when, when people were celebrating New Year's, I left my business. And the next morning, literally the next morning, January 1st, I was, I was working on the new business uh, full-time. And I didn't have a single client. I just had a concept. But with the concept, I knew who the potential buyers were. And, and this is a good tip is when you have an idea, don't build it first. First, see if you can find buyers for the idea. So I started going to attorneys and so forth, even before I launched the company saying, this is the work I'm going to be doing. And are you willing to, to bring me on board if I do this work? And some attorneys said, yeah, I, I need someone that does exactly this. So uh, next opportunity, I promise you, I'll, I'll give it to you. So open the doors and the folks that promised about 50% of them were, you know, followed through on their promise. The other ones didn't. That's kind of normal. But I started getting work pretty early on. Now, we, and we started with small stuff. Like, I, I think one of the first cases was a divorce case, a really tiny case. But we, we did that and other small cases. What do you do, like, for example, in that divorce case? And how much, How did you, because I think that's a good point, you're walking into the people's office, um, asking if they'll buy it. But it, how did you know what to charge? And can you give us the example with the divorce case? What you Yeah, so the divorce case, I remember this one exactly. It was in Princeton, New Jersey. This woman, her husband went on a business trip and just didn't come back. But instead, she, she receives in the mail the day she's expecting him back is a letter basically saying, we're getting divorced and see you later. And there's no money. So you can sue me for all you're, I'm worth, but we're not worth anything. And her attorney, she hired us to say, this guy says there's no money. It's kind of a, a weird way to declare a divorce. Um, and secondly, they lived a pretty affluent life. So it just things didn't add up. So we forensically imaged the, the home computer, the one that they shared, and we started going through the evidence on it. And what you do in forensics is you don't hack accounts. Like we didn't hack into their bank account, but there's images of what he accessed. Shadows uh, is, is one of the more technical terms, but you visit a website and it caches or stores that website on the PC and stores it temporarily. Well, then as you keep navigating on, that, that temporary stored image stays there until something else needs that space. So it can leave something may come in and take a little bit of that space or maybe take all the space and eradicate it. But in most cases, little chunks and pieces would be taken away. But the vast majority of that website they visited or whatever is still there. So we just, we, we did is we restored the images of all his banking activity. And we saw a wealth of money that he was accessing and started to transfer away as he's preparing for this divorce. And we, so we gave her that evidence. Her attorney took it and they put it on the table with the other attorney and say, listen, you say you have no money. We see you actually trying to hide money. This is really not going to look good. Pay up. And, and the guy did. So was that mainly you doing that? And how did you know to do that when you're looking, digging through these files? Because it doesn't, like CSI looks like fun on TV because it's yeah. a long show. But from talking to cops, it sounds like there's a lot more paperwork. A lot of paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> so there's what's called an evidence, chain of evidence, which means every time the computer or the evidence on computer moved possession of other people. There's got to be a record of it. Uh, we, we had to do what's called bag and tag. So we'd go to that computer, the original computer, photograph what we were taking, take the drive out, photograph that, image it, copy it to another hard drive, tag that. So there's all these different steps. Honestly, the first one, thank God, I didn't need to testify or something. I had no clue what I was doing. I found the evidence. I didn't find it following the right evidentiary train a chain of events so if they came back and contested saying this because this is tainted evidence there oops we just got a new member <laughs> Sorry. i don't know if you heard that gong in the background yeah, i heard some member yeah when someone yeah we just had a new member join our organization we hit the gong there you go uh, 
<laughs> so there's a huge Chinese gong right outside my door. So yeah, so then we we got a new, um, produced that evidence, but really didn't know what I was doing, but didn't manipulate the evidence. So it was factual. It was just botched, but no one challenged it because it was it was the facts. And I learned, you know, learned a lot as I went along. The, the beautiful thing I found is when you use software from a third party, so we were using this thing called NCASE, which was software specific to the forensic industry. There's a wealth of training on how to use the software in the industry itself. So very quickly, I went through their training systems. I uh, I networked with people that were using their software and learned a lot from the community very quick. And so how much were you charging, like, for, at least for that first one or the other ones? And so we get an idea. Oh, like the first project. I just, I pulled numbers out of the air. I think the first client, we said, yeah, I think we get $1,000 for this. So we charged $1,000. Then the next client came in with a similar case. I think we did quite a few divorces. We actually, I, I know we did quite a few. We, did, we also did Christy Brinkley's divorce. As we got bigger and bigger, we started getting kind of celebrity cases. Michael Jackson's team called us when he was accused of potentially molesting children, which was not factual in any way, as far as I understand. And we didn't get involved in that case, but we were called. So we started bringing in celebrity cases. When we got bigger, these projects would be ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. But part of it too was the time. So this was 2002 or 2003, I think, when I started it. It sold by 2006. So around 2003 is when I started it. The, it was such a new industry that a lot of the processes weren't perfected yet and there was no standardization. So literally for this process called ghosting or imaging hard drives where you'd copy a hard drive verbatim, we would charge, ultimately we were charging like $1,500 to copy a hard drive. Now it's not just a copy like moving files. You have to do it with the evidentiary chain and tag and stuff and you have to image at what's called the bit level. But we were able to charge $1,500. As I was leaving the industry, the prices were starting to become more competitive because so many people were getting into the industry and people were imaging hard drives for maybe $100. And so today I suspect it's very it's very cost competitive and, I, and the margins are probably nothing like they were when I started in the industry because it was so early on. So yeah, you sold in 2006 and that sounded like Again, maybe your high point as far as financially and when it, when you thought you're on top of the world, is that right? Yeah, well, yeah, and kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm back there right. now, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but in, uh, in a different form. But at that point, a financial high point, but I didn't understand, the irony is I didn't understand finances. So for my first kind of chapter in my entrepreneurial life, that was it. The pinnacle was 2006. The day I sold it, the company I bought is Robert Half International. They're a Fortune 500. They own account temps, office temps, they own you know, all the agencies. They're conglomerate. And they acquired us and that check, the proverbial check was actually wired, but the check came across the table and was like, wow, I have arrived. I figured this out and thought that for the rest of my life, I would just make money by building companies fast and selling pump and dump. Mm -hmm. And so can you tell us what you thought you knew at that point and now realizing back what you did or didn't know as far as like building businesses? Yeah. So I thought I knew everything. I was like, oh, clearly, clearly I'm a genius. So I thought I knew finance. I thought I knew marketing. I, I just, quite frankly, I became a dick. I mean, just my ego was out of control. Not, I don't think I was rude. Like I didn't go to people on the street, you know, oh, I didn't talk ostentatiously and push people around and look at them and say, I'm better than thou. But what did happen was I, I thought I knew the answer to everything. And that was the mistake. What I realized now is I know very little. And that my life, I suspect everyone listening, that our lives is really just an ongoing education. There's so much more to learn. And when it comes to business, at least it's awoken me to understand that, you know, the second I start feeling confident that I know everything about something, that's a danger. That's a danger. That means I've probably stopped choosing to learn about that thing. What are you doing right after you sell it? Oh, so that next day I bought a Viper, a Land Rover LR3. I bought a, uh, a BMW. I, my family 
we went to, to Hawaii, rented a house there on, on, a, on one of the private islands and with the intention of staying there for as long as we wanted. I, I moved into one of the most expensive towns in New Jersey. I, I joined the club. I did all these things to demonstrate wealth. Some of it was celebratory you know, for my wife, my family, and me, but a lot of it was really to show off in hindsight. And that was also a mistake, a huge mistake. Like people who care about stuff like that really don't care about you. And if I care about that stuff and, and feel that's an important way to show my importance, I really don't get it. So I did that. And I also became an angel investor. I, I started investing in all these little startup companies. Investing is not even the right word. I started throwing away money or burning money in front of, because I gave it to these companies and I, my ego was like, well, I'm here. We'll just grow them. I'll just tell them the three steps to growing a big company. <laughs> right. You know, it was like one of those cheesy, I was, I was a walking cheesy online education platform. Like, Hey, sign up and I'll give you money and just follow my three steps. and We'll all be rich. Well, it was a disaster. So it started 10 companies. And within one in one year, nine of them were totally un. And as far as when you're selling your other company, was it or the PGM lose? Is can you tell us how much you made, or give us an idea of how much money you ran through? You know, I used to share, but I, I now hold it in confidence to some degree. But it is, I'll tell you that it was in the Wall Street Journal, so you can look it up. But it was millions. We sold it for millions. So what you spend what half of it on luxury stuff, and the other half was on these businesses? Yeah, it sounds right. It sounds right. It's actually a little bit more on the other businesses because what happened was I, I started buying this luxury stuff. And start these businesses and the businesses I noticed in the first month are not making money. In the second month, they're not making money. I'm like, huh. So I start putting more money into it. I'm like, okay, I, I got to push these forward. And so my focus became, you know, quote unquote investing. And as the businesses were declining, I was putting, fueling them more and more, which basically meant I was basically, it's like a rocket ship that's careening to earth and you put fuel into it so it can go and crash into earth faster. I didn't see it that way, but that's what I was doing. Uh, it got so bad that when they did crash and the businesses were done, there was a pile of bills that still had to be paid. So I was paying these bills for companies that didn't even exist anymore. And so it seems like, oh wait, like I said, you're running out of the money. Can you tell us about that, how you were personally? And you know, I guess you kind of told us financially where you were, which was didn't seem like much left, but um, how did that take a toll on you as a person? Yeah, so personally I became a, a train wreck. First ego, then denial, right? So first it was like, oh, I got all the money in the world. I can do anything. Then, huh, these businesses aren't working. It can't be me. So it was denial. Denial went for a long time. Then it became logical acceptance, emotional denial. So that's what that stage was. I saw that my bank account's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But my emotion was like, oh, I just need one big moment, one client, one thing to happen. It was that one th one more thing type of mode. Just give me something. And it'll, this will all turn around. So logically, I saw it declining and got it. Emotionally, I wasn't ready to accept. Then the day came where there was literally no money left. My accountant called me and said, Mike, you got you to declare bankruptcy. You're done. And I, I didn't. Uh, my ego wouldn't allow me to do that. Perhaps out of this whole outcome, that's the only thing I'm proud of is, is I had to claw my own way out of my own mistake. And that became acceptance. It was February 14th, 2008, Valentine's Day. I hit rock bottom. I went to my family. I had not told them how severe it was until that day. I just sat there in front of my wife and my three children and started sobbing and just said, it's gone. It's all freaking gone. And uh, that became that day, not in the moment did it feel like the turning point, but it subsequently has become the turning point. Like it was the darkest moment in my life. After that, by the way, I went through two years of depression like, like, like I'm an idiot and I'm just not worth it. And why am I even alive? I'm such an ass and angry at myself. But also during that time, I started reflecting more and more on what I could do right without ego the next go around. That's what I've been trying to do ever since. So can you tell us a little bit more after, like after you're saying, after you told your family, maybe that was the lowest point, were you thinking then you're like, Hey, I need to get money to support them again. I mean, did you have to move out of your house? Like what, what happened? Oh yeah. So we lost all the stuff. So the car's gone, house gone. We moved into a rental. 
everything gone. My daughter liked to go horseback riding. We had to cancel that. $25. It was a little bit too much. I didn't get a job, even though my wife started begging me, which is like, it's the ultimate knife to the chest when someone starts telling an entrepreneur to get a job, right? I, that's, I don't know why, but it's the worst feeling. I, I, I can't get a job. So I started clawing. Now this, I was writing the book, The Toy Paper Entrepreneur then. I was just finishing. I just, as I started writing that, by the way, I was, I was just finishing the decline. So I still had some finance left, some money left and, and hit rock bottom as I was finishing that book. But there's an interesting thing that I've come to realize is there's a, there's a saying that when you're on top of the mountain, when you've all the money in the world, you have freedom. And people say, if you had all the money in the world, what would you do? Because you'd pick, you'd pick what makes you passionate. The irony that I've discovered is when you've no money, the answer is exactly the same. Because when you've no, nothing, you have total freedom. Like you can choose anything. So in retrospect, I had no money left. And that's when I committed, I'm going to be a full-time author. And I think, and I know if I had all the money in the world, I've made the exact same commitment. So that was like one of the, one of the bright spots of a very dark period. So it sounds like you're, you're finishing your book then. Did you make money off of it? And then what were you doing next? Yeah. So Toy Paper Entrepreneur has gone on to sell over 100,000 copies, well over 100,000 copies of the book and it's self-published. And when you self-publish a book, you net, you, know, you sell some on Kindle and maybe you make $7 a book. You sell some hardcover. I was making, I think, 11 or $12 a book. I sold international rights to it and stuff. So it started making a living, but it wasn't like this overnight success. I hustled like crazy. I would do anything to move that book. And it started getting momentum. And what happened then is I got a call. I self-published the toilet paper entrepreneur. I got a call from Penguin Book, who's a, just a big book publisher. And they called me up and said, hey, we, we've heard about the toilet paper entrepreneur. Do you want to do a book with us? And by the way, we'll give you an advance, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And back then I was like, you know, oof, I need that in the worst way. Um, but also this was part of me that was part of the path of being a full-time author. So I did a deal with them. I subsequently then have become what I call a hybrid author. I've self-published three books. I've published three books now through Penguin. They just, I just did a sign a contract for another one with them and was able to make a scratch out a living through an author in the beginning. And some of the effects that when you're an author, you start getting hired for speaking engagements. So I'd made some money there. And when you start getting speaking engagements, you start getting sponsors. So some corporations said, hey, we hear you speak to entrepreneurs. We want to get our brand in front of them. We'll pay you money to, to mention our name during a presentation. So between those three things, it didn't become like a glamorous lifestyle, but at least it became a sustainable one within a few years. But it was raw hustle. It was, I was back to the grind, like working, you know, fear kicked in. I was working five to five again, five in the morning to five the next morning. And then you said, go, going from there, I mean, did you eventually launch another company or how did you, after the books and everything, where are you at now? So yeah, another company naturally came out of it. And I think this is probably a great lesson for myself. In the past, I thought, you know, what, what's the idea I have and I want to do and I'll sell it. But I think there's now something better. It's more of an alignment with what the customers want too. Is as I was writing my books, I wrote a book that was originally self-published called Profit First and then it got acquired by Penguin Books and we relaunched it in a revised and expanded edition. And then by far, it's my most popular book now. When I um, was writing the first one, people started calling me saying, hey, I want to hire someone that does this methodology. Who do you have? And I didn't have any so I quickly created an organization called Profit First Professionals and started calling accountants and bookkeepers to, to teach them my method. And there was interest. So what was interesting was 
Profit First was something I totally believed in and I, I felt compelled and needed to write. But also the customer base reached out to me and said, we want to we want to work with you in this capacity. So that launched a company. It's called Profit First Professionals. We are 170, well, I was gonna say 170 with that, that the gong he's heard off. We're now 171 active members. And these are accountants and bookkeepers that are teaching Profit First. And you know, we're, we're a small company, we, but we have about 12 employees here, uh, myself included. And uh, that that's my new entrepreneurial endeavor. But nothing will take place of being an author. Like my full-time commitment is to being an author. I see that's how I feel I can serve others the best. And so that's always the priority. And when you're saying 171 active members, does that mean like accountants and bookkeepers or clients? What's that mean? Yeah. Accountants, bookkeepers, and coaches. We call them the ABCs. So these are accountants, bookkeepers, and coaches who join us. We teach them the profit first method at a very high level. They then go out to their clients and support people who want to do profit first. And uh, is there a quick, like I said, people are more than welcome. We'll put in the show notes with links to your books. But if you had to dumb it down real quick, what makes it different? What's a book summary? Yeah. So for profit first, you know, the, the age old adage has been profit is the bottom line. It's the year end. Those are the terms we use and how it's represented in a formula is you have sales, you subtract your expenses and the remainder's profit. Well, there's this one major problem with that is uh, it's not true. It's, it's a, an abject lie because there was a study conducted in the U.S. of the 28 million small businesses in the U.S. A small business is defined by the SBA as a company that does $25 million in revenue or less. 83% of them are not profitable. So if that formula is true, all of them have sales, all of them have expenses, but there's no profit left over. The, the problem with that formula is while it logically makes sense, so, you know, it's a mathematical equation. Of course, mathematically it makes sense. It doesn't match the behavior of entrepreneurs. And what the behavior of entrepreneurs and all people is, is when something comes last, it means it's not significant. Like if I went to the hospital because I'm sick and the doctor you know, tells me they're like, Mike, you better start addressing your health, eat better, drink better. You better start taking care of your health. I don't come out of the hospital saying, starting today, I'm going to put my health last. I say starting today, I'm going to put my health first. So what comes first is a priority and important. What comes last is insignificant. And we're told in that formula, sales minus expense equals profit, that profit comes last. It's the bottom line. It's the year end. All those things say it's insignificant. So in the book, Profit First, we do exactly what the title says. We take our profit first. It's sales minus profit equals expense. Every time we have a sale, we immediately take a predetermined percentage, 10% or whatever it is, immediately a predetermined percentage allocated toward profit. Now the remainder is used to run our expenses. So we become far more critical of our expenses and we assure profitability. Literally, by the way, literally, if you do this today, you can guarantee profitability from, for your company permanently starting today if you do it and if you stick with it. That's the key. And how do you think about that? Well, because I was never profitable. I was, I was running those other two businesses. I was never profitable. So I'm like, well, how come I'm not profitable? I, I made money when I sold them. So that's why I thought was, oh, you don't make money until the day you sell it, which is totally wrong too. It's ironic in my, my current company, we are profitable. We are very consistently profitable. We do quarterly profit distributions. There hasn't been a single quarter since we started this company that we haven't posted a double digit profit. We always are profitable. And the greatest irony is when you are consistently profitable, if you decide to sell your company, you are the most desirable. So you may have heard that there are other entrepreneur groups out there that can help you feel a little less lonely. Ones like EO, Vistage, or YPO. But why join any of those when you can get all those benefits at a fraction of the price? How? Well, join our Patreon membership. You've heard from some of our members how much of a steal our Patreon membership is. So here's some cold hard numbers for you. In year one with EO, you're going to spend 4,900 bucks. For Vistage, you're paying 18,810 dollars for your first year and for ypo you're shoveling out 
$7,050 for your very first year. For our gold Patreon membership, you're getting it at less than 30 bucks a month. Let that sink in. Again, our gold membership is less than 30 bucks a month compared to those other guys that cost $4,900, $18,810, and $7,050. So if you're on the fence, join today before I act like a smart businessman and I raise prices. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. And so now looking back through your other businesses and where you're at today, what do you think is the most important thing to share with entrepreneurs who are listening or people who are just starting their business or are struggling? Yeah. So first of all, I don't think you should pursue your passion, even though we're all said, you know, what are you passionate about? I think you should pursue your purpose. And, and I distinguish those two. Passion is something that gives you energy. It's exciting to do. You know, I like to play guitar, but I really shouldn't start a business in the guitar industry. Purpose is something that you feel almost called to do, if that's the right word, uh, self given or, or given in any other capacity, if you feel so compelled to do it, that you would do it for free for eternity, that's probably a calling. So for me, it's, I call it eradicating entrepreneurial poverty. And what I mean by entrepreneurial poverty is not just the financial version of it. That's true too. And that's why I wrote Profit First. But this impoverished mindset that I can't get things done, the impoverished inexperience, I, you know, I, I don't know how to do things because I don't have the experience yet. All the different ways that entrepreneurs feel impoverished, I feel called to fix it because that was I was that guy. So I'm doing this for myself and in turn doing it for countless others. So anyone that's starting out, what, what do you really feel called to do? What is your purpose? Once you know that, make a business, build a business around that purpose. Make your business a platform to serve that purpose. You touched on it, but how did you know it was yours when you found yours? My heart kind of sings out to it every day. Like every time I say it, I just feel so compelled by it. Uh, it the work I do now, I go to bed excited to go to work the next morning. Uh, as the day goes on, I actually get more energized. So as we're talking about it, you probably hear my voice elevating. I'm getting more and more pumped because we're, we're talking about something that makes my heart sing. And by the end of the day, I'll be totally jazzed. Now, don't get confused that like, like it builds energy. Like I'm not going to go home like ready to run a marathon. <laughs> right. I, you know, I may be exhausted, but emotionally, I get more and more juiced. And I think those are some of the indicators of, of purpose and passion. Well, like I said, I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with all the listeners. If they wanted to reach out or get in contact with you, what's, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I, I hope folks do want to reach out. If you want to get you know all the free stuff I have to offer, chapters, stuff, go to my website. Uh, it's MikeMichalowitz.com. But I'll give you the two shortcuts to get there because Michalowitz is a doozy of a name to spell. So on Google, type in Mike, that's my first name, and then spacebar Mick. M-I-C, and then just look for the longest, most Polish name you've ever seen. That's me. Select that. You'll get to my website. If you can't remember that though, another shortcut is my nickname in high school is Mike Motorbike. So you can just type in MikeMotorbike.com and that'll forward you onto my website too. Like I said, you can get all my books, the chapter downloads for free. You can get, I used to write for the Wall Street Journal for years. Uh, you can sign up and get all my chat, the best articles I wrote for the Wall Street Journal which are now in their private archive, you can get those for free. And well, like I said, well, we appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. And like I said, now they know how to connect with you. So thank you very much. Oh, it's been a joy. Thanks, Austin. Hope you're enjoying our podcast episode so far. We're interviewing these entrepreneurs to help inspire you and other listeners to build and grow your businesses. So if you like the podcast and know someone else who could benefit from listening, then please pass it on. Thank you for listening to this episode. It's been made available for free by our podcast sponsors and our Patreon members. So thank you to you both, especially our newest 
and oldest Patreon members for paying for this episode. Without you guys and gals, we wouldn't be here. So, would you be willing to pay for someone else to listen for free? If you are willing to help support us and get some awesome Patreon perks along the way, then go to austinsbigp.com to become a Patreon member today. That's austinsbigp.com. Oh, and by the way, Austin's Big P, that stands for Austin's Big Podcast. So again, if you're willing to pay it forward and allow someone else to listen to this episode for free, then go to austinsbigp.com. Big P. Dot com.